thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist Chris Smith is back with us this week and we've just opened our lines 11 and 021-446-0567. Taking your science questions on any subject, join us as we strip science down to its bare essentials. This is your opportunity to satisfy your curiosity about the world we live in and find out more about the weird and wonderful laws of nature and the intricacies of the human body. Chris, good morning to you. Good morning. Uh, you know, I have to say that I'm glad to to be here, standing in, especially on a Friday, because I've I've listened to you enough times. So uh, now it's time to to interact directly. And interestingly enough, in the latest science news, uh, the earliest evidence of the Earth's magnetic field has been uncovered in Australian rock samples dating back 4.5 billion years. Uh, now, Chris, uh, why is this magnetic field important for us, and what is its purpose? Well, without our magnetic field the Earth would be like Mars. It would be a dried-out, desiccated prune of a planet because the magnetic field the planet creates fends off the radiation that rains in from space and another form of radiation called the solar wind. And the solar wind is this maelstrom of charged particles streaming away from the sun which is deflected by the magnetic field around the Earth and around our atmosphere. If it wasn't there, then that solar wind would pluck away components of our atmosphere in the water and eventually the earth would have no atmosphere it would have no water and it would end up a bit like mars so this is critical to the fact that the earth is such a nice place to live but we also don't really understand how the magnetic field is formed we have theories and we really would like to understand more about when it got going in the early Mm. days of the earth so we can refine our models of the development of the planet now previously south african rocks held the crown for being the ones that had told us about the earliest vestiges of the earth's magnetic field because when old rocks were born and forming from liquid rock when they're subject to a magnetic field then magnetizable particles inside them can line up with the earth's field and once the rock cools and hardens those particles are locked into one orientation telling us what the earth's magnetic field if it was there was like at the time well now scientists in australia have found some rock samples even older than the three and a half billion year old ones they had from south africa Mm. these ones are 4.4 billion years old so in other words they date from just the time when the planet was literally first forming they've come from the jack hills conglomerate which is a region of western australia about 800 kilometers north of perth and In these particles, in these pebbles, they have found tiny zircons, which are little crystals, Mm -hmm. and inside those zircons are these little particles of iron, which show that the Earth's magnetic field was established by 4.4 billion years ago, but it was weaker than it was by 3.5 billion years ago. It was only about 12% of its strength by then and by now. So it got started very early, is the message, and that tells us quite a lot about what must have been happening on the early Earth, and uh, possibly about how the magnetic field forms itself. Well, you know, what's very interesting is that they, they, they found it that it is, um, although it is much, much weaker, rather, initially, at just 12% of its current intensity. I mean, how intense can it be if, it, if it's only at 12%? 12%? Well, a 12% strength means that the 
effect of that field extends about three of Earth's radii away from the surface of the planet. In other words, the radius of the Earth is about 6,000 kilometres, so you will get an influence of this magnetic field going out about three times further than that into space, so about 18 to 20,000 kilometres. To put that into perspective, we've got satellites, including geostationary satellites, which sit across the same or above the same patch of the Earth's surface all the time to beam television and other communications data backwards and forwards. They're sitting out there at about 36,000 kilometres. So in other words, they're well within the envelope of our present field, but were those satellites up there when the Earth's magnetic field first formed, they wouldn't be protected by our current field, and therefore they would be subjected to incoming radiation and that kind of thing, which, which would obviously wipe them out. But on the early Earth, it meant that pulses of radiation from the sun, like uh, coronal mass ejections and so on, they would have been able to penetrate quite close into the Earth and change the composition of the atmosphere in pulses, mm -hmm. which may have had interesting effects on the way that the Earth began to evolve and perhaps setting the, the chemical milieu, which ultimately led to life coming along. Let's take your calls, 11 and 21 your SMS line 31702 and 31567. Don't forget, you can also use Twitter at Radio702, at Cape Talk, at Koketso Sachane. A couple of calls that we do have, Chris, let's start off with uh, Tlami in Pretoria. Good morning, Tlami. Good morning. Yeah, I would like to ask a question around nose bleeding. I have a, a six-year-old who, who suffers from nose bleeding. Sometimes she bleeds in her sleep. But when I use vinegar, I let her inhale vinegar. It stops. So my question is, what is the, what, what is the cause of nose bleeding? And why does it react, you know, to vinegar? All right. Kami in Pretoria. Chris? Hi, Kami. I'm not sure that there's any evidence that vinegar should make a difference to the physical risk of having a nosebleed. But the reason we have nosebleeds is because the lining of the nose is very, very well supplied with blood. And this is for two reasons. One is that you need lots of warm blood coming through your nose in order to warm up the air that you breathe in through your nose so that by the time the air gets into your lungs, it's at body temperature, not cold air, and that's more comfortable for you. Also, you need a good blood supply to dampen and moisten the air that you're breathing in through your nose so that the air becomes humid. Again, by the time it gets into your lungs, it's not dried out air, which is going to stop the lungs working as well as they do and keeping themselves clean. It's nice and moist and humid. You need a good blood supply to do that. To have a good blood supply, you need lots of blood vessels and you need them very close to the surface tissue. They're therefore very easy to traumatise. And actually one of the commonest reasons for repeated nosebleeds can be because people pick their noses. It sounds grim, but it's true. And one of the first things we do when we see a patient who says, well, I'm having regular nosebleeds, is you surreptitiously ask them which hand they write with, and then you look at the index finger of that hand. There are, I'm being slightly trivialising of this, but there are other reasons why people have nosebleeds. One of them is because the clotting system doesn't work very well in the body, and that's worth checking. And the other is because you might have fragile blood vessels. So that's worth checking too. So there are a number of reasons why nosebleeds can happen. I don't think that vinegar is necessarily mm. a reason for them stopping, and it may just be coincidence that the times when you have tried the vinegar trick, then this has done something. Um, but it's certainly worth looking into this. If this keeps on happening, then it's definitely worth getting it investigated to find out why these nosebleeds are happening. All right. Avosi in Mamelodi, you have a question for Chris. My name is James. How are you? All right. Hi, Chris. I just wanted to know, can you use a center boom as a robot part? Do you get that, Chris? I didn't, no, I Are didn't you able to use a sonic boom as a weapon? 
Well, effectively you could, because um, it, it's a big pulse of energy. When you have a sonic boom, what is happening is that something is breaking the sound barrier, and, in other words, it's, it's travelling faster than the speed of sound. Now, if you imagine something going along through the air and it's giving out sound waves, those sound waves will go away from the object at the speed of sound. If the object goes faster than the speed of sound, then the sound is trying to get away from the object, but the object is moving into the space behind the sound wave as fast as the sound wave is trying to move, and therefore the energy of the sound wave can never get away from the area where the next sound wave is coming from. And as a result, you get addition of the energy, and you get more and more energy coinciding in one place, and you get a boom. Mm-hmm. Now, this actually is what happens when a whip goes crack. It's what happens when a bullet goes past you and makes a banging noise. It's what happens when an aeroplane goes past you, going very, very fast. And the energy that's being dissipated is very high. When the meteor came in over Russia a couple of years ago, you might remember that there was these amazing um, se- sequences of video being posted onto the Internet <laughs> of these objects flying in over the sky over Russia. Thousands of windows were broken. In, in that uh, fly past of that object because it came in doing you know th- a couple of thousand miles per hour and the sonic boom it created was packing so much energy that when it hit the buildings because glass is relatively rigid it doesn't bend very easily the glass was trying to move faster than the glass couldn't could move and so it just broke you could therefore argue that this is a weapon. Mm. If, you, if you release that kind of energy on people, then you're going to smash things up. And lots of people were injured in that uh, meteor p- uh, flyover, uh, not because they got hit by a meteorite, but because the energy from the sonic boom damaged the buildings and glass, and that damaged people. All right. That's Vusin Mamelodi. I hope you're satisfied there. Quickly to um, some of the SMSs that we do have. Here's one for you, um, Naked Scientist. What is happening to babies when they are teething? Why do they get snotty and have messy nappies? Uh, well, you're certainly right. There's a whole complex of symptoms that happen when babies go through teething. They are usually more fractious or unhappy than they normally are. They can uh, be flushed and red-cheeked. They can be upset and miserable, hard to pacify. I suspect that this is mostly because, I mean, if it is just down to the teeth coming through and it's not because of some other incidental infection or some other problem they've got, it's probably because it's pretty uncomfortable. When you've got things cutting through your uh, gums, your teeth pushing through, it's uncomfortable and I think that probably that discomfort rubs off on them in a number of ways. They don't get proper rest, they don't sleep as well and if you don't sleep as well, you're not as well rested and this may make you more stressed and if you're more stressed, you're going to experience everything as being worse than it really is and so that's going to make you miserable. So I I suspect that's got something to do with it. All right, Um, we continue with our calls. Uh, Tembingosi in Germanstown, you've got a question that I've always wondered about. Good morning. Gentlemen, uh, my question is, is it healthy to live with your blanket uh, over you um, uh, when you're sleeping? You got that, Chris. Well, humans have evolved over many, many years. And when we first appeared in the, in the environment, we had hair. And as our early human ancestors evolved to become more like us, they lost their hair. And because we don't have hair, we have to cover ourselves up somehow to stay warm because we're warm-blooded. And in the environment, sometimes it's colder than we are, and therefore we're losing energy. And we have to conserve energy or reduce the rate of energy loss. So we've naturally evolved to find ways to cover ourselves up and keep ourselves warm. So there's not really any evidence that uh, 
your bedclothes are going to be bad for you unless you get tangled up in them uh, or strangle yourself with them. So a blanket should be fine. All right. And before we get to um, ads that we need to get to, Chris, a very interesting one saying, is it scientifically true if there's an undisclosed pregnancy in the office, people fall asleep? Um, no, I haven't heard that one. It sounds like a tall order to me uh-huh. and uh, like someone's trying to excuse having a nap at their desk. Right, exactly. All right, um, uh, VD, I see you, Nathan, Baisi, Peter, Frank and Gary. We'll get to your questions next. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. It is 9.46. We do continue with the Naked Scientist taking your calls on 11 and 021-446-0567. Use Twitter as well, at KTalk567, at Radio 702, at Sunshine. Um Standing in for Ridi Tabi for this morning. Um, uh, Videz in Midran, good morning. Good day to you. Um, look, I would like to uh, uh, ask you this, the Naked Scientist if you... Um, is there any idea of what is going to happen uh, when the, eventually the sun ceases to work? Uh, will it still have a, a hold? I mean, mean the, the, the present solar system, will it still have influence into the planet? Or, or will it, each and every planet start to see its own way on, in, through the space? Okay. Videz, okay. The sun has about another 5 billion years of fuel on board. It's a huge ball of hydrogen, largely, and the hydrogen under the intense temperatures and pressures at the centre of the sun is being fused to make helium, and in turn, other elements will be slowly squeezed together to make bigger and bigger, more complicated elements. As it does so, the sun's going to get hotter, and as it gets hotter, it will get bigger. And eventually, in about four or five billion years' time, it's going to puff up into a red giant and it will become so big that rather than being about 250 million kilometres away through space, it will be something like uh, the size of Mars. In other words, the Sun will go from its present position all the way out to where Mars is orbiting. So in other words, beyond the Earth and out to the orbit of Mars. In other words, huge. And... That means that, unfortunately, all of the little rocky worlds, which are the innermost planets, Mercury and then Venus and us and Mars, they will be eclipsed and completely consumed inside this enormous star. And that will go on for a little while, and then eventually it will collapse down on itself and make a, a white dwarf, a stellar cinder left behind of, of what the, the sun once was. Therefore... There's little hope for us in four or five billion years' time, but it does mean that we've got four or five billion years to find ourselves a way off this planet and to find a way of surviving into the future, assuming we haven't destroyed ourselves before then. All right, we've got a bit of time there. Um, uh, in Cresta, Nathan, good morning. Morning, gentlemen. Um, not a uh, groundbreaking question, but something that has always worked for me. Um, when you need to sneeze, and you know sometimes you have that feeling of a sneeze and you, and you need to sneeze but, but you can't and you don't and for me nine times out of ten if you stare into the sun or into a fluorescent light something happens and, and it kicks in that sneeze and um, n- not if you look into a normal glow but only the sun or a fluorescent lamp if you stare into those then it helps you sneeze thanks gents I'll listen on the radio alright thank you very much Nathan and Cresta 
Hi, Nathan. What you're describing is what's called the photic sneeze reflex. Photic as in light. And it's well known that in a proportion, perhaps about one person in five, 20% of the population or more, uh, there is this photic response whereby when you are exposed to very bright light, it triggers a sneeze reflex. Now, no one knows exactly why this happens. There was a theory that when you have bright light exposure, this makes your eyes water a bit, and when they water a bit, the tears run down into your nose, tickle your nose, and trigger a sneeze. But when scientists have done tests, people sneeze too rapidly for that to be the case. So instead, what they think is happening is that the very, very bright light sends signals to your brainstem, which is where the size of your pupil is controlled, and also sensation is processed from the eye and nose. And it's thought that the very bright light causes the pupil to constrict, to cut down the amount of light going into the eye, and this also spills over some of the activity into the same part of the nervous system that controls the sneeze reflex, and that's what trips the sneeze in. The reason you're saying you need to be staring at something like close to the sun or a fluorescent light, it's down to light intensity. If it's very, very bright, it will trigger the effect. As I say, about 40, 20 to 40% of people are affected, and the uh, military in many countries are quite worried about this because if you are flying a jet along a thousand plus miles an hour and uh, you suddenly have a sneezing fit when you fly towards the sun this could be quite deleterious to your outcomes and those of the people in the formation with you and therefore you need to identify who the people are that this seems to be happening to because there's some evidence it may be genetic it may run in families some people are more predisposed to it than others and so finding those people who are not subject to this they're likely to make the best pilots all right um damien sends an sms chris saying we often hear that water is running out is the ocean not full of water why can desalination not solve the fresh water problem well i don't think it's a question of of water running out because as the uh, rhyme of the ancient mariner says water water everywhere but not a drop to drink mm. what we have got going on on earth is a redistribution of where the water is and where it needs to be there's a rising population there's about 7.2 billion people on earth and we suspect that with future climate change the amount of livable land area to accommodate this burgeoning population is going to become more restricted and the amount of rainfall that's falling in various areas is going to change wetter areas are likely to become wetter but drier areas are likely to become drier and this means that while there's the same volume of water on earth give or take there's the same amount of water raining and falling on earth or even a bit more give or take where we need it to be i.e where the people are that's when you've got a problem and we need fresh water from the sky, of course, in order to nourish plants, grow food, and therefore feed hungry people. So in the future, we're going to have to think about this, and we're going to have to think about, well, how do we supply this need for water? And exactly, things like desalination, but done in a very energy-effective and efficient way, that's going to be a priority, because trying to get the salt out of water to make clean water uses huge amounts of energy with present technology, and that would compound our present climate change concerns, because mm. if you had to use fossil fuels to do that, you'd obviously be making the very problem that was driving your water deficiency partly uh, worse so we need to think about that carefully and scientists are working on that they're coming up with ways to use for instance solar energy to do desal all right um with uh, four more calls left by easy peter frank and gary i'm going to ask you to be quick with your questions so that we can fit all of you in in four ways by easy good morning good morning um i just want to find out my mother is 89 years old and then she she, she used to complain about sounds in, in her in her head 
And then I took her to a neurologist. They couldn't find anything. Eventually, I took her to the audiologist. She then found out that she has lost about 40, between 30 and 40% of her hearing. And then these noises, that the loss of memory can cause that kind of thing if you have lost the memory. You know, like sounds like <laughs> in, in her head or like shh. I just want to find mm. out. Okay. Loss of memory and its impact on hearing, Chris? Well, it's less likely that the memory loss is causing the hearing loss, although the regions of the brain that are concerned with memory are quite close to the regions of the brain that are concerned with how you hear things and interpret sounds. But what's more likely to be the diagnosis here is tinnitus. And as you get older, you lose the cells in your cochlea, in the inner ear, which converts sound waves quite literally into brain waves. And if you lose those cells, you lose the signals those cells send into the brain so that you can decode the sounds coming in from around about you. If you don't have those signals coming into the brain, then what the brain does is to turn up the the loudness to try and listen harder for those missing sounds and in the process it amplifies the noise in the system it's a bit like if you want to listen to someone talking on the radio and the radio is a bit quiet you turn the volume knob up but at the same time all the static and the hiss gets louder and that's what we think is going on with tinnitus and i suspect that that's partly the diagnosis in your mother all right thank you very much uh, peter in pretoria real quick good morning uh, good morning james yeah i just wanted to quickly find out um with the earth spinning around its own axis, um, if you're at an Olympic event, a field event like shot put or long jump or javelin or whatnot, would you be able to throw the object further when you throw it against the rotation of the earth than you would be able to throwing it with the rotation of the earth? Thanks for that. Well, it certainly makes a difference. Um, when you are doing, dealing with massive distances, it does make a difference. And if you consider how boats, when, when you're in the Navy and you're firing shells, which are big objects over very big distances, you have to recalibrate your guns to take into account the fact that the Earth is spinning. And uh, if you don't do that, then your, your shells are going to go off course because you fire them, and, and then they do actually, because the planet effectively is moved around in the time you've been firing your object, um, then they will feel what's called the Coriolis force, and unless you account for that, they, they will be off target. So it is an effect, but with a shot putter, unless you are a very, 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 very powerful shot putter with the energy of a military gun, then no, it's probably not going to be a big issue for you. All right, last one on this in Montague Gardens. Good morning, Gary. Thanks for your patience. Good morning. My question basically is about sand. And if, you, if you take the entire surface of the Earth it's all sand. Uh, if you dig hundreds of meters deep, it'll be sand. Uh, if you take, for example, the, the Namib Desert, and you take the billions of tons of sand, and you put, a, put, a, put the grains under a microscope, they're all basically the same size. Are those grains of sand going to get any smaller? And uh, if they do, okay. what are you going to end up with, like a powder or what? Okay, thanks, Gary. Chris? Okay, well, lots of the sand that we play around in is the product of, of grinding up the rocks which make up the Earth's surface. The Earth's got lots and lots of silicon and aluminium and silicates on its surfaces, and when they emerge from the molten interior of the Earth and solidify into rocks, they're initially hard, big lumps of rock. As they bash against each other, get weathered and broken apart, they grind down into these smaller particles. Eventually, they're going to stop getting any smaller because they will just turn into things you can't see, um, or, or they just pack down. So I don't think that, that you're going to get sand which becomes so tiny because eventually the really, really smaller stuff will just blow away, and you 
you'll be left with a, a threshold size of particle. You'll get a sort of stratification uh, according to size and weight, won't you? All right. We are out of time, Chris. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure That's talking a pleasure. to you. Um, and, uh, of course, you'll be with Reedy once again next week. I'll see you all next week. Bye-bye. Thank you, Naked Scientist. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.